Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We've seen this in all kinds of ways across the country. People have used local government to try to push back against corporate power and to actually build systems locally that they control. And so I think part of the reason I'm excited about this growing anti-monopoly movement is that it's a chance not only to counter corporate power, but inherently within it, a chance to think about how we can get government back that actually works for us. There are local tools that we're used to using that we can use on Amazon that we just have to sort of build a little bit of spine to do. Connecting with folks who are doing that same type of organizing all around the country is really, really key so that we're sort of connected in a way that starts to make us a more formidable force against this huge company. In the second of our two-part program, we join Tom Hartman, Stacy Mitchell, and Maurice B.P. Weeks to survey the landscape of rising antitrust movements to break the stranglehold of corporate power and level the playing field for a democratized economy. This is Democracy versus Plutocracy, part two. Breaking up is hard to do. I'm your host, Neil Harvey. According to Jeffrey Winters, the author of Oligarchy, wealth in the U.S. today is over two times as concentrated as Imperial Rome, which was a slave and farmer society. If billionaires were a nation, they'd be the world's third largest economy. As Fortune Magazine CEO Alan Murray has observed, more and more CEOs worry that public support for the system in which they've operated is in danger of disappearing. Indeed, from local communities and states to federal policy, antitrust movements to dismantle monopolies are challenging the system that can be summed up as make feudalism great again. Amazon hosted this kind of game show-like uh, search for the best city to build their second headquarters in. And the way that the contest worked is basically whoever could give them the most tax giveaways or benefits was gonna be the city that they chose. Maurice B.P. Weeks worked on one of the most explosive and high-profile campaigns to resist and challenge Amazon. He's co-director of the Action Center for Race and Economy, where he works with community organizations and labor unions to create equitable communities and dismantle a monopolistic system he calls racial capitalism. The campaign erupted in the borough of Queens in New York City, which is among the most diverse and low income in the nation. Maurice B.P. Weeks spoke online at a Bioneers conference. So from leaked documents and some public documents, we know that cities were offering all sorts of things, you know, no income tax by Amazon employees for 35 years, no property taxes paid at all will build a rail line for you, all sorts of things that cities were offering. And when Queens was chosen, you know, I think the residents there realized a couple of things. One, 
this isn't really a, a good business partner to have in your neighborhood. So there's lots of diverse businesses in, in Queens that have been there for lots of years. And one thing that we know that happens when Amazon comes into a particular place is they suck away both the labor market and just drive down the quality of the actual area while not paying any taxes into that area in order to upkeep other things. That along with you know the company having no response to things like them having contracts with ICE or other policing entities, the areas that they were looking at going into were filled with immigrants, either first or second generation immigrants, to have a neighbor coming in, this huge corporation that is so aggressive towards immigrants with their contracts with ICE just wasn't something that was possible. And frankly, New York City is, along with lots of other states in this moment, there are lots of financial needs there in schools and roads and parks, and there's a lot of financial need. I think communities correctly agreed that it just doesn't make sense to give giveaways to the one of the wealthiest corporations on earth run by the richest man on earth when we could instead fund our schools more, you know, fund our train system more, et cetera. So that's a little of why the Queens pushback happened. That was a higher profile. And I will say that both Amazon and Google and other companies really do this all of the time. For Stacey Mitchell, the Queens rebellion was deja vu all over again. As co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, she's been battling the same players and the same matrix ensnaring local communities nationwide. She's produced many influential reports and articles and testified before Congress, and she's been seminal in some of the antitrust actions dogging Amazon. There is this growing focus on structure, economic structure, and on policy. And this sort of, we've been living for a, a number of decades here, imagining that big companies have been taking over and growing in size and power simply because they were better at what they did, right? They were more efficient. Like every time you walked past the corner drugstore that had closed its doors or another workplace that had gone out of business, another you know, small town somewhere that was struggling, you just sort of assumed that this was like the price of progress, the natural evolution of companies taking over that were just better at what they did. And what's really true and what a lot of our research and other research shows is that in fact, what has happened is that we've written a set of policies that have favored these companies extraordinarily. And as they've grown, they've been able to uh, manipulate government further and further and further to their own advantage. I mean, Amazon has picked up over $4 billion in local and state subsidies. You know, governments across the country writing Amazon checks. You know, if you're a local hardware store and you want to open a second location, like, good luck getting a dime from your city council. You'll be laughed out and told that this is a free market and you have to compete, right? Uh, meanwhile, your biggest competitor is getting these huge subsidies. And that's not all. Amazon didn't collect sales tax in most places for over 20 years, an incredible advantage. And we see them even today in the midst of the COVID crisis, you know, not actually stepping up and providing uh, protection for the employees that are in their warehouses, the way that they're really legally obligated to do and certainly ethically obligated to do. And our anti-monopoly laws, the fact that we really shelved our antitrust laws 40 years ago, has been a whole set of tools that, again, has fueled the exercise of power. So the pushback in Queens that Maurice talked about and that we're really seeing in the grassroots level across the country is 
this growing focus on, you know, it's not just about calling these companies out for, for their bad behavior and trying to get them to do better. It's about recognizing that this is our government and we own these rules and we need to change these laws and we need to think about, well, what does an economic structure look like that actually serves a democracy and that actually serves the needs of people? So how did we get here? Beginning in the 1960s and 70s, the lawyer and later failed Supreme Court nominee Robert Bork launched a full frontal attack against antitrust law. He shifted the focus from fair competition to a matter of efficiency and price points. If customers were getting a cheaper price, then monopoly was just fine. He marketed the phrase consumer welfare so successfully that in 1971, the famous Powell memo by the Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell redefined the metric for judging monopoly down to price points. Bork teamed up with Milton Friedman of the rising Chicago School of Economics and neoliberalism. They asserted that corporations were accountable only to shareholders, not to employees, communities, or the environment. This radical shift was contrary to the original intent of antitrust law, which was to protect small businesses, fair competition, and democracy itself against the concentration of great wealth and power. Beginning in the 1980s, the Reagan administration started systematically dissembling antitrust law and dialing down enforcement. That trend has continued full tilt boogie ever since landing us in today's world of giants and dwarves. So how'd that work out? Pretty much the way you'd expect, says progressive radio talk show host and author Tom Hartman. I think the most important thing, though, is educating people. I don't think most Americans realize that the average American family pays a $5,000 a year monopoly tax. Americans pay twice as much for cable television as any other developed country in the world. We pay two to three times as much for cell phone service. We pay more than twice as much for Wi-Fi. We pay more for airfare. We pay um, two to 10 times more for pharmaceuticals. I mean, the list just goes on and on. We're spending a lot more for a lot of things than anybody else, any other developed country in the world anyway, does because they enforce their anti-monopoly laws and we don't. So I think this step one is waking people up, educating people. Data show that monopolies smother the economy. They drive down wages, raise prices, throttle small and independent businesses, damage local communities and economies, and stifle innovation and competition. The predicament is that they're now so embedded in the economy that they compose a kind of private infrastructure that people depend on. But there's another way to approach this dilemma, says Maurice B.P. Weeks. I live in the neighborhood where most of my neighbors are elderly and at high risk for contracting the coronavirus in a way that would be a real health complication for them. And they've been ordering a lot on Amazon, a lot of stuff, everything from kind of regular groceries to paper towels to things to keep them busy in the house, et cetera. And they love it too. That's the other thing. They, you know, everyone gets excited when they're getting an Amazon package. They love the company. But the fact that there's an infrastructure that exists so that we could get things that people need to them quickly at a time where they can't get them themselves, that's actually great. And they build it using really, really shady and not so great strategies, but now it is there. 
and we can actually we have we can take it we can use it we can do a lot of the things that they're doing whether it can be operated in the way that it currently is at the size that it is is a real question to which personally i think the answer is no we have to break it up and we have to have some sort of more democratic control over it you know of course controlling for we don't want to pay the workers crappy wages we want it to be safe we don't want it to be harming the environment etc but i think that there are things there that that prove that this is a piece of infrastructure that we can use it's not online commerce or you know the cloud or any of the other industries that amazon controls it's the fact that those things are controlled by this single unaccountable player that operates essentially above any kind of law that's the problem that we have to address, not the technology, not how much we enjoy online commerce and its convenience. That's all great. Stacy Mitchell's work on decentralizing and democratizing the economy led her to testify before Congress. For the first time in decades, the House of Representatives began looking at resuscitating antitrust law. A year-long investigation of big tech resulted in a scathing report in 2020. And they found that these companies, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple are in fact monopolies, that they have monopoly power, that they exercise that power in ways that harms people and harms independent businesses and communities. And then they lay out a set of recommendations. And essentially with regard to Amazon, what they've called for is exactly how we handle the railroad. So in 1906, we passed a law that said, look, if you're a railroad, that's fine you can't also own other companies. Like you have to be a neutral carrier, a common carrier. Um, you can't have a financial interest in commodities because then you're gonna favor your own commodities over those of, of those who need the railroad. And that's what we should do with Amazon. We should say, look, you as an online platform needs to be separate from Amazon as a retailer. Uh, AWS needs to be spun off and their logistics infrastructure. They've now built a logistics operation, a shipping operation that rivals UPS and even the postal service in scale, but that also needs to be spun off as an independent company. And that Amazon, when it's functioning as critical infrastructure, needs to be subject to a set of, of public oversight laws. But needless to say, breaking up is hard to do. Like the railroads before them, big tech funds the best government money can buy, including Congress. Stacy Mitchell says much of the real action has already been happening at the local and regional levels. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance published a guide called Fighting Monopoly Power that details actions states and communities can take. It goes through a whole range of tools that people have at the state and local level, some of those that I just named, but also things like starting a public bank, which your city can do and can be a great way to begin to untangle our financial system from Wall Street and begin to build locally controlled banking systems that work with community banks and with local credit unions to actually channel our capital where it needs to go to create the kinds of businesses and jobs and, and economic development that we need. We can you know, enact rules that eliminate subsidies. There are just tons of powers at the state and local level. And we see that in the hundreds and hundreds of municipalities that have built their own publicly owned broadband networks and told Time Warner and the other charter and the other giants to go away. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have better internet at lower cost. We've seen it in places like Oklahoma and other states that have passed referendum blocking corporate ownership of farmland and taking action against some of the big ag monopolies. 
We see it in places like North Dakota, where they've said that you can't operate a pharmacy in the state unless you're a pharmacist. So every pharmacy in North Dakota is a locally owned independent business. And we see this in all kinds of ways across the country that people have used local government to try to push back against corporate power and to actually build systems locally that they control. And I think when we start to look at the economy through that lens, we, we can see all the ways that we can begin to shift things. There are local tools that we're used to using that we can use on Amazon that we just have to sort of build a little bit of spine to do. So ensuring workplace safety in a particular municipality you can pass a law that just does that in the way that you want. You can still continue to do your local organizing, but connecting with folks who are doing that same type of organizing all around the country is really, really key so that we're sort of connected in a way that that starts to make us a more formidable force against this huge company. Maurice BP Weeks and Stacy Mitchell are part of a coalition called Athena, which is taking on Amazon. Along with advocates, policy experts, and academics, Athena is a group of 40-plus organizations whose communities and livelihoods are negatively impacted by Amazon. Athena's stated aim is to break up the power of Amazon and other mammoth corporations and recreate a world where all people, our environment, and our economy are healthy and sustainable, where everyone is safe, respected, and able to thrive. When we return, we look from the local to the global as antitrust movements start to upend the monopoly board. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Visit Bioneers.org, where you can explore hundreds of articles, interviews, and videos that we publish each year. Subscribe to our newsletters and podcasts, and check out deep dives on the topics that matter to you most. You can also learn more about the annual Bioneers Conference at Bioneers.org. Although breaking up is hard to do, we've broken up monopolies before. When the Nixon and Carter administrations used antitrust laws to break up the AT&T telephone monopoly, it vaporized the corporate propaganda campaign that it would harm shareholders in 401ks. Instead, one share of stock became seven or eight shares. Shareholder value increased. But today's big tech companies have taken monopoly to a dizzying new level. Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff calls it Surveillance Capitalism, the title of her influential book. Tom Hartman, Maurice B.P. Weeks, and Stacy Mitchell say that these days, Big Brother is not only watching you. Amazon is in the perfect position to know what people are buying. They're selling stuff from small businesses, which is their sales pitch, right? We've got you know half of our businesses, small businesses, flowing through us. But what they're doing is they're very carefully looking at 
which one of these small businesses are actually doing pretty good so we can just screw them, wipe them out and start, you know, find some manufacturer to make the generic version of what they're selling and you know, put them in the ground. You know, Amazon sells its own goods as a retailer where it's buying goods from suppliers, selling them on its website. It also manufactures its own private label goods. So there are thousands of items that are Amazon branded goods. Stacy Mitchell. And it hosts on its platform all of these third-party sellers. And those third-party sellers are, you know, independent retailers, they're major brands, you know, big companies that you would know, small companies, there are a bunch of them overseas, you know, all kinds of different sorts of businesses. And what that enables, if you want to sell online right now, because Amazon is getting so many people right out of the gate, so many eyeballs right out of the gate, you know, your choice is either you can hang your shingle out on the World Wide Web on your own, uh, have your own site, but it's like, you know, you're like on a dirt road that few people are actually traveling by and ever finding you, or you can become a seller on Amazon. And if you become a seller on Amazon, you are giving to your most ferocious competitor everything of value that you have. You're giving them your relationships with your customers, you're giving them your knowledge of the particular products that you sell, and they, because they own all that infrastructure, not only for e-commerce, but also we can talk about it, Amazon Web Services and increasingly Alexa, their sort of voice operating system, all of those pieces of infrastructure give them this godlike view of everything that is happening across the economy. And from that vantage point, they can pick off hot selling products that some business has found and start selling them themselves and demote that business in the search result, or they can simply use their gatekeeper power to raise fees. And so, you know, what we found is that um, the businesses that are selling on Amazon's site are increasingly having to pay a bigger and bigger cut of their sales. Today, about one out of every $3 in sales that a business makes on Amazon's site they have to pay to Amazon. That's up from 19% just a few years ago. So this is a company that governs our markets that effectively levies a tax on our trade. And if you have a problem with it, you know, the judge and jury again is Amazon. So again, back to this issue of control and power. Along with corporate capture of government law and regulation, equally important is capturing people's minds. Although Tom Hartman says educating the public is a critical piece of the solution, what do you do when mass media and the internet are also monopolized and manipulated by giant corporations? So, you know, we have, you know, a handful of corporations now that control the public dialogue and then sitting atop that, or perhaps under that, like the roots of a tree, kind of the substrate or a subsurface of that, you've got Facebook which has, uh, you know, I'm personally the opinion that Mark Zuckerberg is the most powerful man in the world and is able to influence public opinion similarly. And I never saw any really aggressive conversations about net neutrality there either, although that, those would tend to be more scattered. But we need to take this on systemically, top to bottom. Maurice B.P. Weeks. It's not just an economic power, it is also a political power. And that power doesn't just come from the amount that they give on the books to legislators. There's a real fear of going after Zuckerberg, going after Bezos, being seen as going after one of these companies. You know, folks are, are really scared to take them on. And we end up with these things like we'll allow Facebook to 
impanel their own review of their practices that they get to pick the people on and then decide whether they want to implement the changes that they, you know, these wacky things are like, well, you know, it'd be easier to just have government do that. But we're so, you know, we're, we're so afraid of these sort of too big to regulate companies that we don't do anything. That may be changing. The European Union hit Google with billions in fines from 2017 through 2019. But these are just rounding errors for the nearly $2 trillion corporation. More significantly, Australia passed a law forcing Facebook and Google to pay news publishers for their content. South Korea forced Apple and Google to open their app stores to alternative payment systems, threatening their 30% gatekeeper commission from developers. Turkey is demanding that Google stop favoring its own properties in local searches, a critical issue with major financial consequences both for Google and its would-be competitors. In the U.S., a series of ongoing whistleblower leaks and scandals have continued to turn up the heat on big tech. The House antitrust subcommittee's work and the investigation that they did this year, one of the really electrifying moments in that was they had a hearing in late July where they had the four CEOs, Jeff Bezos and, and the others up there. You know, many of the hearings that we see, there's a kind of deference that lawmakers give to these CEOs, a sense of like, I don't really understand technology, but you do and you're powerful and, and all that sort of like and you're letting them to grandstand. And this committee did not have any of that. They made it very clear that these companies are subject to the law and subject to accountability in terms of how they just conducted themselves. If, if one of the CEOs was not answering the question and was starting to like wander off and do a PR thing, they just cut them off and moved on. Politely, but you know, just really clear cut. And they brought in all of these voices of ordinary people, small business owners, workers, other people who'd been harmed, and gave them, you know, people who they'd uncovered as part of the investigation really gave them voice during the hearing. And so I think part of the reason I'm excited about this growing anti-monopoly movement is that it's a chance not only to counter corporate power, but inherently within it, a chance to think about how we can get government back that actually works for us. When Jeff Bezos returned to Earth from his 15-minute vacation in space on his corporate Blue Origin rocket, he gleefully thanked Amazon employees and shareholders. They had just paid $5.5 billion for his four minutes hanging out at the edge of outer space. It wasn't rocket science for the world to grok the clueless lunacy of the moment. I've tried to explain something like Bezos' wealth to children before. And you know, the saying is, if you stacked $1 bills just of his wealth, you'd be way past the space station by the time you were finished tapping. <laughs> they get a huge PR boost when they give these tiny, tiny, tiny percentages of their wealth to solve problems that they are actually contributing to. So Bezos you know, just recently made a lot of headlines by contributing to a climate fund Amazon is one of the worst polluters, of course, in America, you know, probably the world. And I think we need to deal with the sociopathy of great wealth. Uh, a number of these people are just literally screaming sociopaths. Democracy versus Plutocracy, part two. Breaking up is hard to do. 
with Maurice B.P. Weeks, Stacy Mitchell, and Tom Hartman. You can visit Bioneers.org to explore more of our media and subscribe to our podcasts and newsletters. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer and station relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and consulting producer, Neil Harvey. Producer, Teo Grossman. Program engineer and music supervisor, Emily Harris. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. This is program number 248.